Hello and welcome to The Good News This Week from the Conservative Post, our very first show and a bit of a practice trial run this evening, so do bear with us. But this will be the show that takes you on a journey through all the good news and positive things that have been happening across Britain this week. Before we start, we do need to say this room is being recorded, so if anyone comes up on stage and speaks, you may be featured on the resulting podcast, so please bear that in mind. But let's make a start by finding out who our panel are this evening. First, we have politician and councillor Mike Rouse. Maybe you could introduce yourself, Mike. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. Yep, uh, I'm a uh, councillor on Redditch Borough Council, um, but I also do political consultancy as well, uh, helping people to win campaigns and elections. Thanks for having me. And next, we have political journalist Joshua Godfrey. Welcome, Joshua. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm a former journalist and uh, currently work as a senior communications officer to Rachel McLean, who's currently the MP for Redditch uh, and also a minister in the Department for Transport. Fantastic. And um, finally, um, we've got entrepreneur and politician Adam Kent, who I've just found out you actually went to Oxford University, Adam. Um, very impressive. <laughs> Tell us all about it. Um, hi, Claire. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a, I think that's probably a little bit of a, an over-egging of it. I did a six-month mini-MBA through the Goldman Sachs small 10,000 business programme, but it was absolutely fabulous. I mean, from a point of procrastination in business, coming out with all guns firing, it was a really useful exercise. And I think I learned a huge amount that I think we could probably apply in the public sector and see a massive increase in productivity. But uh, no, great experience. Um, my background, oh, obviously run three small businesses uh, based out of Birmingham and got into politics in about 2017 and what awakening that was. Uh, got elected to county council and also now I'm deputy leader at Bromsgrove District Council as well. Fabulous. What a fantastic panel we've got. And I suppose I should introduce myself. My name's Claire Bullivant and I'm the founder of The Conservative Post. I'm a journalist, a publisher and a podcaster. And I'm delighted to welcome everyone to our show this evening. So let's make a start. Um, once again, there's been lots of positivity happening across Britain this week, this week being the 15th to the 21st of March. So our top 10 stories this week will start at number 10. And that already sounds a little bit like Top of the Pops, doesn't it? But our first story is over 25 Five million Brits have now received their first dose of the COVID vaccine. This is such a significant milestone um, as it's almost half of the adult population, um, which is pretty impressive, mm -hmm. isn't it? Uh, everyone wants because it has been a incredibly tough year. Um, and if we if we take the, the politics out of it for for us for a bit. I, I think everyone wanted the vaccine rollout to succeed, no matter you know, whether you support the government or not, it, it was incredibly important that the, the vaccine rollout has gone as well as it was. I think, it, you know, those of us in politics and especially conservatives uh, like all of us here, we, we knew that the vaccine rollout needed to be successful. It needed to be at pace. And I think if you if you now look over to our friends on the continent um, it, it's very stark, isn't it? The difference between uh, the vaccine rollout here uh, and uh, and on the continent. So I think most people I speak to who aren't remotely political uh, are all, you know, really positive uh, about the rollout. And um, I think it's, everyone's just 
uh, it's just what everyone needed after this year. And Joshua, how were we so, like, how did they get it so right and they knew that this had to be done um, when other countries failed? I mean, I have to say I'm so proud of Britain for being on the ball with this. They really have knocked it out of the park. Um, who, who was it? Who was so responsible? Well, if, if you remember, they set up the COVID uh, vaccine task force, I think, in the autumn, uh, and it was chaired by Kate Bingham. Um, and, you know, for a while, uh, she was pillared by some parts of the press and uh, the left. Uh, and now it turns out that her work uh, was fundamental in the success of the rollout. And she signed contracts with the vaccine companies before... Uh, the European Union did and before other countries did. Uh, and she signed such good contracts that we it means that we are in a position today where 52 percent of adults have now been vaccinated and, and not forgetting that it was only over just 100 days ago that uh, the first woman in Britain was uh, vaccinated. So Kate Bingham, uh, there are many people that should apologise for the way that they treated her because we wouldn't be here today talking about this milestone if it wasn't for the work that she did months ago. I think she was somebody who obviously knew the importance of first mover advantage, getting out there and uh, signing these deals early, uh, but, but took a risk, took a gamble on this and was backed by the government in taking that gamble, which was a brave thing for everybody to do at the time. Because remember, it was millions of buy orders for uh, vaccines that had not yet been uh, completed. So, you know, millions of Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, uh, and so on and so forth, um, that that she needed to go and get in for us. And it paid, and it paid off. Uh, the, ga the gamble paid off. Um, it makes you wonder, looking at it now, why the European Union and other countries didn't make a similar calculation, because it's a relatively straightforward calculation. Just spread your bets across as many vaccines as you possibly can. Uh, go big on the ones that you think are going to deliver uh, the most bang for the buck in this case this was AstraZeneca and um, the Pfizer uh, vaccine uh, and it paid off so um, I think she's she's done an incredible job I think yeah she is she is owed an apology um, absolutely and I think she'll probably be rewarded in some honours uh, further down the line and quite rightly uh, too as, uh, as well I would say I think um, you know it has been a shot in the arm both in terms of vaccinations but in the terms of the spirit of the nation because it, it is extremely popular uh, vaccinations including uh, even the Labour opposition are having to admit that vaccinations is a good news story uh, and they're having to say well, you know fair play uh, on the vaccines um, so I think it, it's definitely a good news story um, and it's great to see that positivity about vaccinations as well. I had mine on Wednesday, uh, just gone owing to underlying health conditions. So I had the AstraZeneca vaccine on Wednesday. So um, yeah, I've, I, has anybody else had theirs uh, in the in the in the room? I haven't. Yeah. No. Uh, let me let me come in, Mike, because I've definitely had mine, but I don't know whether that's related to my age. <laughs> I was going to say I'm too young. <laughs> put a bit of a different spin on this, though. Would this have happened without Brexit? Because you know, where where would we be now in 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 the situation with the European Union that seems to be flip flopping from yeah, it's safe, no, it's not safe, yes, it's safe, no, it's not safe, depending on the political wind in that particular country. And I think what it's shown, above all else, is what we in the UK can do. We've not gone looking for excuses for this. 
they've gone out, they've taken some brave decisions. And, and really, it's a bit like picking stocks in the stock market, isn't it? They have picked the right stocks. And everybody is now coveting them. I've read a news story today about the fact that they're, they're kicking off about the UK having the AstraZeneca vaccine or whatever. And AstraZeneca have pointed out to them that there's no point in not letting the UK have it because we've got most of the raw product for it. So I think, I think it augurs well really for the future because this shows what we're capable of in this country. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. really hoping that it's a bit of a start for a, a, an, an industrial revolution or is it a chemical revolution or is it a tech revolution? But certainly it shows what we're capable of and we've come across extremely well across the whole of the world. And we are leading like we used to do all the time. I think you're absolutely right. And I, but I would add that if we had not Brexited already, uh, then this would have been yet another catalyst in that process, uh, pushing people uh, towards saying, actually, the EU isn't working for us because we would have been in that terrible position of having to go into their programme, um, which, is, which is nowhere near performing in the way that the, the, the British programme is and and to be honest with you, I can't understand why. I, I, I can't <laughs> comprehend why why on earth um, you know a block the size of the European Union has has managed to get this so catastrophically wrong, uh, and why you know the member states aren't looking at this and going you know is this a solution that really works for us? Because if surely there was one uh, disaster and emergency that the strength of the EU should have been. Um, boldly, you know, shown for every, everybody and, and a beacon of, of hope and optimism. It would have been a global pandemic, uh, and yet on that count, it is singularly failed. Uh, to, to be honest, so I, it would be really interesting to see how the geopolitics plays out post uh, pandemic when people do start, you know, looking back retrospectively and asking uh, whether they're getting, you know, fr- frankly, bang for their buck uh, and protection uh, for their money. Uh, as well, because surely that's that's part of what they're paying into. Yeah, that's a really good point that both of you have have made, and not to be too Brexity, but if we uh, the point Mike makes about we were constantly told since 2016 that it will be the European Union, a country of 26 countries now, I think, uh, against a country of uh, 70 million people. And that it would mean that we would lose out on the world stage, um, us, you know, small Britain against the mighty European Union. And I'm saying this to uh, someone who voted to remain, but has since changed their mind, obviously. Uh, but that's a good, it, that's the we're getting we're we're tackling that point already. Mm-hmm. Only months after leaving, the the United Kingdom, a now sovereign, independent country of 70 million people, has outperformed a union of 26 countries when we were told that going it alone uh, would diminish our position in the world. So I think that's a really good point you've made, Mike and Adam. And I think for people like me who did vote Remain, but have long sort of regretted that decision back in 2016, I don't think the European Union has endeared itself (laughs) on the population of this country uh, especially threatening to block life-saving vaccines. I, I, as Mike says, it'd be amazing to see the polling now on if if there was a referendum to rejoin. Would, uh, you know, after the way the EU have behaved during this pandemic, and especially in the recent weeks, uh, I don't think the European Union have done themselves any favours um, at all. And you can see that because the Lib Dems and the SNP 
uh, refuse to comment on the behaviour of the European Union because they know how damaging it has been to the European cause uh, in this country. Uh, so I think Adam's right. We have we have seen the benefits of Brexit. Uh, so not uh, you know months after properly leaving the um, transition period. Yeah, no, I mean, if I can come back, I think it was only in February that the German newspaper Design said that the EU's vaccine crisis was the best advertisement for Brexit that there was. Mm. And if you think about the own goal in terms of the Northern Ireland hard border decision that was made by them as well, I think they've been running around chasing their tails, really. And it just shows you, I mean, somebody, I think it was my father once said to me that a partnership is the hardest ship in the world to sail. Well, it's difficult enough with two people. You can see how difficult it is with 27. They don't know whether they're coming, going or went. And I think really you can see a change in the public in, in the UK. There's a pride and a, a feeling of, uh, well, I wouldn't say smugness really, but I mean, if ever you wanted a decision to be verified in the biggest possible way, then I think our success, and it is a success on the vaccine, really is it. And I just say, Claire, um, as this is a positive news um, room, and we're talking about positive news, there was an article by, and I've probably pronounced her name wrong, Camilla Tomery, um, the associate editor in The Telegraph yesterday, um, where she did an interview with Kate Bingham. And if you get a chance to read it, I've sent it to you on Messenger, Claire. It is an absolute brilliant article where you're reading that um, she spent virtually all the time working well over 12 hours a day and even at like trying to get fit the only time she could try and get fit was running in the dark at night with like um one of these headlights on her head um because that's the only time she got but she was working like 12 hours a day oh i hope she does yeah i hope she does get the recognition she needs definitely ian thank you for that um also i heard this um this morning that the government has invested an extra 47.6 million for a vaccine manufacturing and innovation center they've already put 200 million into it earlier this year and last year um so it means that we'll be able to make 70 million doses within a six-month period ourselves and not have to rely on anyone else again which again is another nice kind of aspect because of brexit isn't it We'll be exporting them as well, won't we? Well, so, exactly. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to help lots of other countries as well. Not just in this, uh, but but in future pandemics as well, because I think, you know, we do have to bear in mind that um, uh, there could be variants and strains that, that evolve over time and there could be other uh, diseases that, that, that break out as well. So um, as, a, as a sort of post-Brexit, but also post-pandemic uh, world as, as well. And obviously we need to be well positioned to protect our own population, uh, but also to be able to do play our role in... Uh, protected in the rest of the world, especially those developing countries, um, because we have, uh, through the uh, World Health Organization's programme, also supported uh, vaccinations in developing uh, countries, which is obviously something uh, that we can also be proud of as, as well, that we're not just vaccinating our own population, we are contributing um, to vaccinations uh, around the world through through the other programmes that we're, we're members of as well. So 
Um, I think I think it's good news all around on, on vaccinations, isn't it? Well, what a start. A fantastic news story to start with. And we've got nine more to get through. So let's um, keep ploughing through them. Um, number nine this week on our positive news stories of the week is all about the Department of Transport announcing 650 roles to be created in Birmingham, Leeds and Leeds. Sorry. And they're talking they keep doing this and talking about levelling up throughout the UK. And it's the latest step in their drive to move 22,000 civil service roles from London to communities across the UK by 2030, apparently. I don't understand why this is so important, but everyone seems to think it is. You guys in politics, perhaps you can um, let me know. What does it mean? Well, does it mean MPs will be able to work locally more? Or I don't know. Yes. Yeah, so um, actually, I mean, I suppose uh, declaring an interest. I, I used to be um, a sort of low level uh, civil servant um, working in the, in the skill sector, which was uh, and still is based uh, in Coventry. And that was one of the uh, earlier examples of an agency at the time uh, being based out in the, in, the, in the regions. And it was actually under the Blair era where they went for a regionalised approach and they essentially had these sort of learning and skills councils that were set up in all of the regions. Uh, and then under the Cameron era where they first then started uh, this, this process of pushing uh, uh, ministries uh, outwards where, where they can um, and, and strengthening sort of agencies outside of, of London. And we've had decisions about, you know, we've got things about Ch Channel 4, um, Treasury and, and so on. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a long road. It, it takes a long time to move uh, organisations. The BBC uh, is an example of one as well. Um, and not everybody likes it because obviously there's, there's some civil servants and people that work in these sectors that um, quite like living and working uh, in London uh, and get very upset about the prospect of uh, moving to uh, the Midlands. Uh, but can I just say, and I'm sure Adam will, will agree with me as well, but from a sort of Redditch and Bromsgrove point of view, where we are physically located in the Midlands, this is very good news because it means, you know, good jobs uh, being brought up here to the Midlands. Uh, and of course, a very fine place to live would be Redditch and Bromsgrove for them to be able to commute into their uh, Birmingham uh, offices. So, so it's good for um, uh, not just uh, urban West Midlands and urban Birmingham, uh, but for the areas that surround it as well. So it's important that that economic benefit is felt, uh, not just in, in, in the city centre where they're going to be based, but much, much further um, afield. Um, and obviously it, it means that people who, who have got skills and talent and capability, but perhaps can't afford or don't really want to go and live uh, in, in London, it is a very expensive place to live, as we, as we know, um, will be able to get jobs and opportunities in the Midlands as well. So I think that's, that's very, very important. And as Andy Street tweeted uh, the other day to, uh, to a rather uh, snobby uh, tweet uh, put up, I think by one of the BBC uh, figures in, in relation to their uh, plan to move up to, to Birmingham as well. Um, if you know, if, if we have got plenty of talent up here in the Midlands that is willing to step in and replace any job lost um, from anybody in London who decides that, that that's it, they're not willing to move up to the Midlands. Um, and want to be snobby about it, well, we've got plenty of talent here that's willing to replace those jobs uh, in an instant. So it's, it's very good news um, it, when we get these in place. My only hope, I suppose, is that we've got to see new recruitment uh, taking place. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, where we're chooping and moving people across uh, organisations and within structures, that, that's great, and it, you know, that keeps them in the jobs. But we also do need to see new recruitment in the area because it's one thing to relocate and feel the economic benefits of such. Uh, but equally, you've got to get new people in the door as well from those local areas. But isn't this a double-edged sword, Mike, Adam and Joshua? Because um, 
speaking with people that I know with HSBC and KPMG, where they've closed down offices in London and relocated them to Birmingham, the which has been great news because um, of their great big new regional. And I think it is um, HSBC have transferred their head office or some of their department's head offices to Birmingham. The downside when you speak to local people is that they're not happy about it because these people have come in with all these big salary jobs. They've relocated and it's driven the price of houses up. So if we're starting to get people to come in along with more salaries, it's great that they're going to be buying houses and working locally, putting money into the local economy. But what impact is it going to have on house prices? Well, can I can I come in that? Because I actually am the portfolio holder for planning in Bromsgrove, which is one of the most expensive places to buy a house in the Midlands, I think. And um, I mean, really, I suppose the issue you've got and uh, Mike picked up on a couple of things I was going to talk about. I mean, I think Andy Street has probably in, a, in some way been responsible for this. I mean, he's really raised the awareness of the West Midlands massively. The inward investment. I mean, I, I declare an interest. I've got an office in the centre of Birmingham in B1. And um, the change I've seen around me has been phenomenal. The um, derelict buildings turned into a flats and housing. And I mean, what I would say is there's a huge amount of development going on in Birmingham. We can still take more of the people that want to come. I'll just say, let's have an open door. Get the people here. And, and the jobs that are being created is absolutely fabulous. I think, I think there's 650 jobs coming as part of this DFT move. And I think 100 of them are being recruited for at this particular point in time. And don't forget about HS2 just up the road that's, that's creating potentially massive demand for, for all sorts of homes and uh, the economy, particularly within our patch of Bromsgrove and Redditch, really. So that's, that's a massive fillet. You're always going to get the cynical people. I think the, the comment that Mike was talking about was um, a Radio 1 Newsbeat reporter who's facing a move to Birmingham spoke bluntly of their dismay in a meeting with news bosses who are remaining in London. I mean, the bosses are staying in London. There's something a bit wrong there, isn't there, really? But anyway, good luck trying to get young, exciting journalists to move to Didworth. Well, I can tell that Radio mm. 1 Newsbeat reporter that there'll be stacks of young journalists who don't want to move from London because let's recruit them actually in Birmingham and in yeah, Didworth. Absolutely. You know, that's what we need to do. It's it's very easy to slip into negativity on this as well, isn't it? On you know, you've just seen it with the the, the Radio One DJ there, and I, I do understand and appreciate the sort of displacement concerns. Is that, you know, you've got to have this wealth coming in, and what does it do for the poorer communities in the area? And it's very important that we make sure uh, that they're not left behind. Uh, but what I would say is, is whilst Bromsgrove is one of the most expensive places to to live in the Midlands, Redditch that I represent is uh, one of the poorest, uh, and actually one of the reasons why we financially struggle as we do as a council. Is because of the uh, low council tax base uh, that, that we have uh, and actually an influx of people moving into and demanding uh, band D council tax properties will improve our council tax base massively ensuring that we can provide uh, sustainable services to those communities that need them to ensure that we don't leave uh, people behind uh, so, so whilst I wouldn't want to see you know, like a scene from Ben-Hur where, where you know the masses uh, come flooding in and, and displacing uh, local communities um, I do think a good injection uh, <laughs> No, no pun intended, is, um, is, is, is what we need uh, in, this, in this area. Yes. Uh, and just to touch on a point that you made, Mike, about why, uh, and I think, Claire, this, is, this goes back to your question, about why is the government um, moving departments out of London? 
again, it, it goes back to the point that for most normal folk um, who don't really engage with politics as much as all of us do on this call, they still feel like um, that power is, is too concentrated in London and there's decisions that are made about their local area, uh, despite councils having uh, enormous amounts of power, actually. And, um, uh, and Mike and Adam have a lot more influence on local decisions than local members of parliament do. Uh, but moving the departments uh, out of London, it's not just um, symbolic and it's, an, it's a powerful message uh, to show that we are decamping out of London, that you don't have to go to London to be successful and that there is talent. Uh, and the prime minister has said there is unlocked talent uh, across all of the UK uh, in pocket, you know, uh, anywhere you anywhere you go, there is talent, but it is not tapped because people feel like they have to leave their area to go to London. Um, and this is what the government wants to to change. And, for example, perhaps to be selfish and to talk about me, if I want to progress in my political career, I would have to go to London. Now, I don't really know if I want to do that because I'm born and bred Worcestershire. Uh, my family and my friends are, are around here. So why should I have to go to London uh, to progress uh, in my own career? Uh, and so by decamping government departments out, out of London, you're enabling people like me, and there are many thousands of young people like me, not just in politics, but journalism, you name it. There will be thousands of uh, young people who no longer have to go to London. And so areas like Redditch, Bromsgrove, Worcestershire, uh, Birmingham will keep more of its young people and keep more of its talent. And we'll start to see uh, Britain's second city and Manchester, Leeds uh, sort of become uh, much more powerful, uh, much more uh, better off uh, and I think you will bring uh, people along with you on, on on that journey. So I think it's only a good thing that uh, power is being once again moved out of of London. Well, to be honest, it makes far more sense for Birmingham to be the capital of the UK anyway, because it's much more central, isn't it, really? I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. We've got HS2 coming here. You're going to be able to get anywhere from the centre of Birmingham. So let's let's... Let's challenge the London elite and turn around and say, well, come on, the Midlands is here. We're up and running. We're going to certainly level it up. But picking up on something Ian said, and also you touched on, Josh, the, the key thing that I've got and the big concern, and I've put plenty of motions forward at, at Worcester to try and assist the 16 to 25-year-olds that have really struggled through COVID in terms of opportunities and everything else, and to, to, to find jobs and um, without these jobs coming here and it's going to be very difficult and one of the, the big issues that we've got locally is getting higher paid jobs and relocating these departments up to the Midlands we're going to get better higher paid jobs so the benefits to local people which is picking up something that Ian was referring to is that they will have a better opportunities that are around for, for higher paid jobs in that particular area. And you talked about leaving the area and going to London. Well, my daughter had to leave Worcestershire for work. Uh, she ended up in Telford because the property prices were that much more reasonable and the job opportunities were there. She moved for a degree apprenticeship that she was able to buy a shared ownership property 
with a 60,000 part mortgage on 120,000 two bedroom property that probably costs a quarter of a million in Bromsgrove. Now, for me, that's what we've got to do. And we aren't going to get there if we don't build the houses and we don't create the jobs. So I really welcome this shift to the Midlands. I certainly say, sorry, Ian, let's have more of it because, you know, I think not only is it going to be seeing some people relocate, but let's hope this Radio 1 journalist doesn't relocate. You know, let's create an opportunity for local people in more higher paid jobs. No, Mike and Adam, I totally agree with you. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate of the um, the downside, potentially, where we've got um, all these opportunities in Birmingham. But when you're looking at um, just trying to go round the clock, say like Wolverhampton, Dudley, Nuneaton, Coventry, Leamington, Warwick, um, Bromsgrove, Redditch, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be other people that haven't got those jobs but have got jobs in Birmingham that are commuting in and the costs could actually go sky high for them because one of the things that people have said, if you look at London, because of the way property um, prices have been driven up by, and to me, I, I blame it on greedy landlords and estate agents, people have moved out of London and the prices of houses in Kent, etc., have gone through the roof. The travel with train passes, etc., has gone through the roof. People are finding it like really difficult when they, and that's where I'm coming from. I think something needs to be done to make sure house prices don't go through the roof and travel costs as well. Well, I didn't understand the benefits of it all, but you guys have really um, proved it to me. So I, I understand what you're saying, Ian, totally, but I, I'm all for it now. I'm um, 100% behind you. But I'm sorry, we're going to have to keep ploughing along because we don't actually have that much time and we've got still a lot to get through. Um, so thank you for answering that so um, brilliantly. But our next um, top story of the week was about the children going back to school. In fact, over 7 million children were back at school and colleges in this last week week um you guys who've got kids how's it been oh can i just say thank bleep for that um as a as a father of two uh myself one of them actually is is going to school full-time in september um the the other is at school full-time uh anyway um yeah what 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 a relief to get them back into full-time education not just uh for us parents and particularly my wife who has been an absolute homeschooling superstar and i really have to pay tribute to her and to everybody else um who's been involved in in homeschooling um but also for the children as well because i think it's very noticeable uh the impact that it's had on their education behavior emotional health mental health um it, it's really important that this is the last time we ever do anything like that ever again. And is it um, going to be the last time? Well, I, I think it could be the last time. I don't see, uh, and I think this 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 blends with what we were talking about earlier in terms of vaccinations, because of course there are now those arguing that we should accelerate the um, unlocking roadmap uh, in line with the success of the vaccination uh, program, and it certainly should be the case that we learn the lessons from the pandemic to ensure that we never again have to go down this road. One of the things that we could have done that we didn't do, and obviously I'm, I'm you know, I'm a, a, an ordinary bloke when it comes to this stuff. I'm not part of the, the ministry and the decision making up in, in, in Whitehall, but 
I do feel that there could have been a far more Herculean and militaristic effort to keep the schools open uh, than was was actually uh, put in. Um, we could have deployed all kinds of resources, you know, even if it meant uh, teaching outdoors uh, for, for for some parts of of you know of the country if, if necessary. Um, I think I think we should have treated um, educational emergency almost as an emergency. Uh, within its own right, because the impacts of this, both in attainment and in mental health and everything, are going to be felt for generations. And I think we as Conservatives have an absolute moral obligation. Um, and as, you know, you know, being the strong party that we are on education, uh, to provide this, the solutions and the way forward on this, and also to make sure we do learn those lessons so we never have to go through uh, th- that again. And, I th- you know, obviously I think the Conservatives are the right party to do that, and I think we have got the capability uh, to do that. But it's, it's, it's just, it was a tragedy, and what we don't want is, is another disaster further down the line because of uh, in, around attainment. I mean, we're already seeing that the exams for 2021 are going to be based on teacher-based assessments. We've got to get back uh, to, to, to the, you know, the... Uh, I don't. I love to say the word algorithm, but it's it's not essentially algorithm. To centre assess, that's the 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 word I was looking for. Centre assessed grades. Uh, we've got to go back to to, to having the exam um, bodies being able to um, normalise qualifications across the country because we're going to have massive inconsistency uh, across areas based on uh, teacher based uh, grading. Great though they are, obviously teachers. You know, I trust them to, to you know to do a, a really stand up job uh, on this. Uh, but we've got to make sure that for employers, and then we talk about opportunity for these young people. We've got to make sure that when opportunities uh, of the future, they're going forward with qualifications uh, that are strongly supported by industry because the industry has faith in the qualification that they've got. Uh, not not dubious about well, you know, is that is that a strong qualification or not? I don't know because your teacher graded it. So we've got to restore. Uh, that level of confidence within the education sector um, as, as, as well. It would be absolutely imperative that we do so. Is Gavin Williamson up for the job for doing it? He's having a tough time, though, isn't he, with these um, unions? Well, as you would expect me to say as a Conservative um, and as a Conservative representative, that you know, I have full faith and confidence in, in the Education Secretary um, to, to turn the situation around. And um, uh, so long as the Prime Minister has faith in him, so, 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 so do I. And I think it is incumbent upon him to turn these things around. What we don't want to see um, at this time, is, you know, particularly when we're trying to adjust things and move things forward, um, is, is changes uh, for the sake of changes based on, on public mood and opinion. And I appreciate there's a certain uh, public mood, and I recognise that. Um, I feel it myself sometimes. But um, I don't think it's right to focus that onto one individual, one cabinet member. Uh, I I think there's lots of uh, lessons to be learned. And I think I would rather have somebody who is learning those lessons or learned those lessons uh, and is then applying that learning uh, than somebody coming in fresh into the uh, uh, job. Let's be let's all be honest. It's a. It's a situation that anybody's in. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you're not. If you don't close the schools, everybody wants them closed. Even if you open them, half the people are going to want them open. I open them closed. I mean, at, at the end of the day, the, I, I do find it quite funny, really, that somebody who's been in a depart- department that employs tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people can be responsible for the civil servant's failure to deliver a specific system or policy. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we may well see local breakouts. Um, The kids are being tested substantially on return to school. And I I 
cannot see under any circumstances that we're going to end up in a, a national lockdown in school places again. But but I would imagine there may well be a situation where individual schools, if there is a large outbreak, as we're seeing in some industries and some workplaces, that they will have to do something on a more local level. But I'm sure that's going to be where it is. But I mean, I've got I'm, my my kids now are, are, are working. One's on a degree apprenticeship, but my other son is um, was was finishing his degree last year, and obviously didn't get to get his degree in a ceremony, didn't complete it properly, and was faced with, well, what do I do in my life? You know, now I'm leaving. There's no jobs available. I can't go and work in a workplace. What shall I do? So as the lockdown was seeming to end in the summer, he took the decision to take a master's and then all of a sudden it's all changed again. But Mm. he's got a different ethic to work now. He can now work in a situation more remotely. He's used to getting on with the stuff. And I think the stuff he's learned over the last 12 months will hold up really, really well moving forward. But, you know, it's great to see the kids back in school. Um, Let's just hope the parents abide by the rules in the playground. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, Moving on to number six. Thousands of rough sleepers are now supported with 212 million government investment as of this week in new homes for them. Um, This is good news, right? Yes. And well, Mike and Adam, uh, again, this goes back to the point about how councils really are on the front line. Obviously, the government has a strategy uh, and a moral duty, uh, which I think it is living up to so far by the millions of pounds that it's uh, announced to end rough sleeping. But it's councils which Mike and Adam are on and help run and represent, which are on the front line of um, tackling this issue. And obviously, through my job, I know about the great work that Redditch Borough Council has done uh, in rehoming rough sleepers uh, in Redditch. I think now what the public want to see is I think the public do recognise the efforts that the government has gone to to rehome uh, rough sleepers. Uh, what we need now, uh, and I think the government is working on a long term strategy, but Adam and Mike probably know more than me on this. So I, I would just say we need to make sure now that we keep these rough sleepers in uh, accommodation uh and you know we can end rough sleeping by 2030 i think is the uh government target i think it would not be a uh you know i I think this has given us the opportunity now to end rough sleeping and i think it would not um it wouldn't be great would it if we went backwards on this issue when the government has done so much and put so much money into ending this issue but i know mike and adam you probably you guys know more than me on this because your councils are on the front line. Yeah, and and if I come back, I suppose what you've got to think, you've got to think who are the type of people that end up on the street. Well, I was nearly one of those. In the nineties, I ended up with a business I was running was in massive financial difficulty. I lost my home. I ended up going through a divorce. I lost my business. I ended up with five quid in my pocket. Now, if I hadn't got family to fall back on. I'd have been on the street like anybody else. I was fortunate I had the family there. And it's that easy. And I think, really, it's not just putting people in a home. It's getting them a job. It's getting them off drugs, if that's the situation. What what has been the situation and what is addressed with them? And I think, really, they're putting a roof over their heads. 
that's just the first stage of this. We've got to get these people into work. And I noticed that there's a quite a few employers now, particularly with um, that aren't requesting um, evidence on criminal record checks and so forth, people that are leaving prison, because there's an understanding that you can't have people that are unemployable. We've got to find a way to get people not just off the street and with a home over the head, but back into work yeah. with a future. You're absolutely, absolutely right. We've got to have that future built uh, for people. Uh, likewise, I, I was technically homeless twice, uh, and it, if it wasn't for the grace of uh, my friend's sofa, um, I would have been uh, rough, rough sleeping uh, myself. So, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of almost uh, uh, been there, but, but not quite. And, and I just, you know, my heart does come out to anybody who has to, uh, to sleep rough. It is a very, very complicated issue. I think the government are looking at spending something like £750 million is going to be spent over the next year. Um, and, and obviously the ambitious target that Josh, Josh talked about. But it's really important that this is not a cross, uh, sorry, this is not a party political issue. And I think that's one of the things that we are starting to make a slight bit of progress on. And it's not, not anywhere near uh, quickly enough. Um, but we really do have to make sure we take the politics uh, out of rough sleeping and homelessness because it's, it's something that affects every uh, government regardless of its colour. And it's something that requires effort from every government regardless of its colour. So I think it's one of those big issues that we've all really got to muscle into and, and, and knuckle down with uh, in order to tackle um, effectively. So it's good that government's doing uh, what, it's, what it's doing. And I think it's one of those issues that, that, that we, you know, just as, as society and as humanity, we have a, an absolute moral obligation uh, to get right. Yeah, and thank you, you, Mike, and also Adam. I know in both of your areas, you've done an incredible amount of work on this in both Redditch and Bromsgrove. Um, I think there's two people or something, is that right, in Redditch who are homeless now? And maybe... Uh, well, it's actually, it's actually zero. Okay, um, yeah. So, 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 yeah, and the there's always uh, an issue getting to zero as well because um, there are people that you know how much outreach you do with them um, they will decide that they want to rough sleep and, that, and that's that's their decision and we can't you know physically uh, pick them up and force them uh, into a, into a home we can provide it but ultimately it's up to them to, to walk over the threshold and, in, and through the door so um, it's, it's a very very complicated issue uh, in terms of getting to to uh, zero but yeah currently it is it is zero and actually over the pandemic we we, we took the step of um, providing our theatre as a uh, homelessness shelter um, as well. Uh, not the stage, uh, but the dressing rooms, because actually the dressing room obviously individually compartmentalised. So we were able to basically convert those while the theatre was shut uh, into a homelessness uh, shelter, which, which went down well with the local population. <laughs> Thank you both. Um... Moving on to our next story now. This one, this one excites me, Adam, because I had a conversation about this with you the other day, and you told me something very exciting about it. Boris is launching a three billion bus revolution, and you were telling me that buses are going to become a bit like Uber, where you can just call them up on your phone. Yeah, I mean, we've, I've been looking at um, a solution for Bromsgrove, really, because it's, it's really odd that the um, town centre is divorced from a really excellent railway station. It's literally like a mile and a bit out of the town centre. And you could be faced with a situation where you could go, say, from Birmingham University to Bromsgrove, let's say you want to come in on market day or go shopping, and you get on a train for 15 minutes, then it takes you 24 minutes to get that final mile. So I wanted to solve this problem, and with great work from the people at Worcestershire County Council and through a company called VIA, we're actually introducing a scheme which is called Demand Responsive Transport. There's quite a few other schemes, a few 
starting in the UK, and it's also been used on the continent quite a lot, which means that you can basically call a bus from wherever you are. There's no set route. It uses artificial intelligence, Google Maps and whatever else to work out what passengers have I got on the bus and what's the best route to get them to where they want to go to and um, inject you into that transport system. So the idea is you can turn up at the station, use a touchscreen at the station or use the phone and then get straight to the town centre or whatever business you're going to. So for me, it's a massive opportunity and we want to run it out, particularly through Bromsgrove District. And I see it working its way into Redditch as well, because obviously my patch with all is actually... It's, it's the barrier. It's between um, Birmingham and Redditch, really. I hold all the uh, aces there. And if, um, if we want to get people down to the new Eastern Gateway and to Amazon, we've got to come up with unique ideas. And I think the days of a bus running all the way into Birmingham, when, you know, a little shuffle could get you into the transport network like you would hop tubes in London, that, that's got to be the future. So it's great it to totally see. totally is the future. And is this part of what Boris's plan, his revolution is going to include? Does he know about this? I think you should get on the phone to him if he doesn't. Well, well, I think we've copied the system in Milton Keynes and Berlin, I think. But it's interesting because we've got another bit, really. We want to turn them into electric as well, which is another item we were going to discuss a bit later. But um, I, 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 you can't... After the pandemic, we're all going to have to change. I mean... What on earth do you want to run a bus that's empty for? I mean, it's absolutely crackers, isn't it? Let's say there's no passengers. Well, the bus shouldn't be running. And really, um, it's going to be the future. We're going to see electric buses. I think we've got the e-scooters in Redditch already. It's that combined innovative way to look at how do the people want to, want to operate. So, I mean, I live in a rural area. I'm literally two and a half miles from the nearest train station, which hasn't got parking. So I'm going to drive somewhere else. But if I can call a little local bus that's going to just drop me off there, I'm going to be doing using that service all day long. Can I be? Can I just throw in there, Adam? Um, I think one of the problems we've got is um, we need to get councillors actually making sure our city centres are work areas again. And as somebody who grew up in Coventry, where um, people used to jump on the bus going to the city centre to work, it was absolutely brilliant. Now the buses are dying in Coventry because they don't service the areas that are needed. The council, um, you could blame it on the government, but again, I blame it on um, state agents and landlords. The property prices have been driven up and companies have moved out of the city centre. So where you had mass offices in the city centre, you had hotels in the city centre, They've all been driven away. It's all been turned into student accommodation. So the bus network doesn't exist or provide what is needed for today's working environment. And we've got to get... It's a hub-and-spoke solution. We had it years ago where um, the hub was the city centre. All the buses came in. Everybody jumped on buses to go to work. No problem at all. But we haven't got that anymore. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm going to give you some good news, actually. You've you probably not seen the press, but Andy Street has actually launched a trial there, uh, I think last week, with the University of Warwick for the on-demand uh, buses from uh, Warwick University as part of what they're going to trial for Coventry. So this is coming everywhere, really. And I think everybody is using the same system that we're going to be using in Bromsgrove. I was a bit gutted, really, because... 
you know, he, he's jumped on board and got the press and I brought it out first. But there we go. That's healthy competition, isn't it? Really? We're going to get what, the press on this podcast. <laughs> that's what we want as Conservatives. But Coventry City Council are apparently keen to support the rollout of these on-demand buses. And um, they, let, it's people like you, Ian, have got to push them to make sure they, they get it there. But really, I'm sorry, look. I don't agree there, Adam, because being a local person and knowing the area and what you see Coventry City Council are doing... Yeah, they're Labour, but um, the standing joke in Coventry is um, Coventry City Council isn't run by um, the Labour Party. Um, Actually, it's run by Coventry University and Warwick University. The council only does things to benefit um, all the students at Coventry University and Warwick University. Nothing is being done for businesses. Businesses are being driven to the outsides of Coventry, into Birmingham, into Warwickshire, um, et cetera, et cetera. And people are getting really annoyed. So we could say it's the Labour and Council that have driven the um, city into, well, despair, but we're not going to solve anything because the two universities have taken... Well, well, I I think you just need to get, you need to get a Conservative majority in there then, clearly. It seems to be Andy, Andy Street is... Is moving it forward, but uh, yeah. Anyway, Mike, what are we going to do about integrating Redditch in this system? Anyway, well, well just well, absolutely. You know, we're we're all up for it. We've got the e-scooters, as you've noted, and we want to get. Um, uh, you know, we're all up for the uh, on-demand uh, buses if we can get it. It's, it's a different situation in the cities than it is in the town because you have the. Um, without getting too geeky, but you've got the uh, Bus Services Act 2017 um, that, that comes into play, which enables uh, a combined authority mayor like Andy Street to run a regulated bus service, which can't be run by county councils. They could, they're forbidden from uh, operating a, um, a bus franchise uh, in in the same way. So, so you do end up with a different uh, solutions in places like Coventry than you do in in Worcestershire. Just just on the Coventry uh, point, um, I, I grew up in the shadow of of Warwick University. Um, uh, in in the 1980s, as the industry was uh, advanced collapse stage, um, where people used to work making radiators uh, in, in Coventry, uh, they then switched to cleaning the floors of the university uh, in the area. And the deprivation that crept in in the area that I uh, grew up in was uh, a- absolutely uh, rife. And what has happened in Coventry is it's going to be a very generational thing to sort because you do now have, I think it's more than 60% uh, people in Coventry are public sector workers. Um, private industry uh, in that area is is scarce, as as, as Ian says, it pushed out essentially to um, uh, to, to, to Warwickshire, and you, you do have that that university problem um, at the centre where where it's largely student accommodation, but that drives the market at the moment. That's the only thing that's keeping that economy in that area uh, alive and well, and that's why going back to the earlier point on education, it's important to get that right because you know it does have knock on effects. Uh, for there, but on but on the transport point, that does mean that you know there, there is there is innovation going into Coventry through that Warwick Uni uh, thing that, that, that Adam mentioned. Um, but but I just want to say you know getting a conservative majority in, in Coventry is a hell of a challenge. I was there when they managed it in the early two thousands was part of that campaign. Um, but to get there now would uh, would take a Herculean effort, I'm afraid, uh, to, to to get there. But uh, what we do know is obviously where you have got conservative representation, it it, it, it does deliver for people. So uh, you know anybody listening who does live in Coventry, you know what to do. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Moving on, um, going on to number four now this week, Pretty Patel strengthening our police and crime force across the country by departmentalisation. She's basically breaking down the force into smaller units and making them more responsible and giving them more powers. What do we think about this? 
Um, can I come in on this? Because I've worked incredibly well with the Police and Crime Commissioner in West Mercia, John Campion. And um, we're trying to use innovative approaches in the way that we are with all sorts of other things, with things like smart water and other technology. But I think anything that can give... One of the things that I've noted is how far behind in tech that the police forces have actually been for a while. And this is one of the police and crime commissioners' roles, and particularly in West Mercia, in driving forward the investment in, in new technology and bringing the police force. I don't, know, I don't know whether I can say into the millennium, maybe into the 90s, but really anything we can do to strengthen the service of those people that can then act as the foil for, for change within the police, I would strongly support. I agree with Adam. I think call, uh, especially on policing, is always better. And obviously we have the role of the police and crime commissioner. And, uh, you know, I still think there's a lot to do to in so people actually know who they are and what they what they do. But I support the sort of uh, overarching aim of, of that office. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say uh, any, anything that devolves more power uh, into local areas is better for local residents because at the end of the day people you know Adam has said that he, you know he works really well with the police and crime commissioner it is it's uh it's relationships like that that really do improve outcomes for local residents so uh, I'm a big believer in local is best and uh, especially on policing people still people want to know who their local inspector is people want to know their local uh, officers so i think any move to uh give local areas more power is uh is is a really good thing for local local people Fabulous. Sorry, I didn't turn myself on there. That's great. Um, moving on to our next point now. So we're having to whiz through them because we've only got about 10 minutes left. But um, a great story this week. One of my favourite. Obviously, Prince Philip returned home to Windsor Castle following a month-long stay in hospital. Um, he's 99. Do you think he's going to get a telegram from his wife this June when he turns 100? And, um, you know, it's good news for the nation, isn't it? The Queen needs a bit of good news this week. Um, how do we all feel about Prince Philip? I think it's great. I mean, you know, when did he go into retirement in his mid-90s? I mean, can you imagine? It's just unbelievable, isn't it, the longevity of it? But, um, no, I think it's absolutely fabulous. Everybody's very fearful when you get somebody at that age going into hospital, and it's brilliant to see that he's received great care, and he's out, and, and, and let's hope you haven't... Uh, you haven't called something there, Claire, really. <laughs> but uh, I think there's going to be one big party in June, isn't there? Yeah, I think he's a, he just seems to be a man of steel. And uh, yeah, as Adam says, you know, when people that age go to hospital, you, you do sort of um, look at the, the worst, don't you? But he's a remarkable man. He's had a remarkable life um, uh, and his service to the country. Uh, I think uh, a lot of us uh, should look up to and aim to emulate. Um, so, yeah, great news that he's out of hospital. Yeah, here. Here, here too. Um, moving on to our second story, top story of the week. Um, this is the new five billion project gigabyte um, to connect the UK. This this sounds incredible. Um, Adam, you seem to know a lot about all this. Maybe you can oh, take off. I, I, I was absolutely delighted to see this because, you know, back in, I, 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 it was before I was elected to the County Council. I think they said 2012 or 2013 
Worcestershire County Council took the decision to invest massively in rolling out superfast broadband across Worcestershire. And I had a motion at council actually um, pushing us to go to gigabit before this actual announcement in terms of, well, what's the next phase? Because I think I remember having to use a satellite dish and a dial-up modem, and then 2 meg was amazing, and then 10 meg was great, and the target now is up at 100 meg. But no, this is, this is fabulous. And actually, back in 2013, Labour voted against investing in that super-fast broadband in Worcestershire. And if we hadn't have done it, I think only 60% or 50% of the businesses would have been able to uh, connect to super fast so in Worcestershire now I think it's over 97 percent and now we want to press on and go go for gigabit let's I mean this is going to be a massive uplift for people not just working from home but businesses and making them competitive across the world stage we've got to go for this in a big way and it will bring massive dividends to all of us yeah, so obviously, you know, declaring the interest there that uh, Worcestershire is in the uh, sort of the next round of procurement. I think it goes out in June, uh, so it would be sort of 2022 once it goes through that procurement process where it starts. And it's great to see that Worcestershire is uh, on that list, along with, I think, Norfolk, Shropshire, Isle of Wight and, and uh, Hampshire. Um, there is there is a tendency with these announcements. I mean, I'm not I'm absolutely welcoming it like Adam, but I don't just want to repeat what 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 Adam said. Um, I think we have to make sure that um, we we manage expectations in terms of the rollout on this, because of course, as soon as people hear this news, uh, they immediately want the broadband in their home the next day, uh, and it takes it takes time to you know connect up those properties and get those going, and and it, that goes back to you know sort of the skills uh, point is is that in this country we, we just don't have enough uh, telecoms engineers uh, and people in the sector to be putting this infrastructure in. It's a real challenge, actually, a real challenge, and then obviously we have challenges with with um, uh, high-risk vendors as, as well in the ecosystem, as we know with Huawei and, and so on. Um, so so there's, there's, there's a whole really complicated um, uh, piece here. And, and, and like Adam, I, I recall back to the early days, 21 years ago is when I started working in this uh, sector, in the days of the 56 kvps uh, modem, and we've really come a very, very long way. And what's actually, when you think about it, 21 years is a relatively uh, short space of time. But um, obviously the pandemic has given us cause to need this more more urgently and i've dealt with constituents you know who are forced to have work from home in a village um and they're they are you know really struggling to um to get their their connection working when all of them are trying to do video calls at the same time uh, and then you've got the kids also doing the the virtual lessons uh, as well so speed is not the only issue speed is a huge part of it uh, but the bandwidth and the capacity and the quality of service protocols are a huge part of it as well and making sure that everybody uh, when the crush happens uh, are able to get a quality of service uh, through through that as well and that that's a huge part of the investment well, it all sounds so exciting and i'm sorry we've only got a couple of minutes left so we are going to go on to our number one story but um thank you for explaining that and i can't wait for the whole broadband thing because i'm in a horrible area we have terrible reception here but anyway our number one story um is the uk and canadian trade ministers celebrated a trade ratification this week and this is obviously um our superstar superwoman trade secretary liz truss um smashing it out the ball park once again obviously this trade deal is getting a lot of attention as it's canada um but liz and her team they've now secured 66 trade deals plus obviously the deal with the eu etc and um which frost was obviously instrumental in doing but there are only like 208 countries in the world surely everyone on whatever side of the political fence has to be impressed global britain is back right 
Oh, she, Liz has done a brilliant job on this. I mean, it's probably one of the top, top performances as a cabinet member from any of the ministers that, that we've seen. And I'm somebody that does business with America and other areas. And um, in fact, I filled out a global access uh, form today to get fast, speedy access into America in the, in the hope that we soon open up the flights and we can get traveling and start to do this international business. Uh, who wouldn't want to do business with the UK now? I mean, let's be honest, we, we've got a really good story to sell now. And going on the back of the vaccine rollout, we've shown what we're capable of. And let's bring it on. Let's start doing business with all of these countries. I mean, just look at the size of the Commonwealth. These are our partners that have been left to one side whilst we've played with this European experiment. Come on, let's get back to setting up deals with our friends. Absolutely. Well, we've also just asked to join the CPTPP, I think it is, um, which will open up Japan, Australia, New Zealand and, you know, all these other countries as well. And hopefully we might still get the USA deal, um, but there's all to play for still there. But guys, our time is up. Um, it's gone way too quickly. I think we probably spent a little bit too long on the first few questions and maybe we might need to think of doing maybe only five stories every week because there's so much to say on each one of them. But guys, you've been absolutely amazing. Um, thank you so much for all your insights and um, I think it's been a really successful first pod um, here on Clubhouse um, thank you so much thank you Claire yeah thank you well, there you go. Our first podcast completed. Thank you so much to Mike Rouse, Joshua Godfrey, Adam Kent, and also special guest Ian Calvert, who asked some pretty probing questions there. We want to start doing these positive news shows every Sunday night. So please do get involved. Thank you to Clubhouse for facilitating the recording. For more positive news day by day, hour by hour across Britain, please check out conservativepost.co.uk. Here's looking forward to another week of Positive Press. See you next Sunday.